we are exploring mystical experience. We are asking ourselves, are these people really any different than us? And over the course of the year, as we go through this series, you'll have the opportunity to meet many people through many different times of life who have had mystical experiences. And I believe you'll be surprised to find out how many of them have things in common with you. How many of them have had experiences that have surprised them. So I want you to place yourself right now in the lifetime of George Washington Carver. And I want to remind you what we learned last week, especially for those of you who are joining us for the first time this week. We learned last week that George Washington Carver was born right at the end of the Civil War. That he was born to, into indentured servitude. He was a slave. His mother was a slave. And that when the Civil War ended, just soon after that, he and his mother were kidnapped from the plantation where they lived. And they were taken across the Arkansas border. And the owner of the plantation, George Carver, uh, um, I'm sorry, Moses Carver, sent someone to go after them. And he traded a horse to get George back. And they could not find his mother. Some people believe his mother was killed. Some people believe they saw his mother farther north years later, but he never saw his mother again. His father was a slave on a nearby plantation who died before he was ever born. So within the first year of his life, he was an orphan. And when he was brought back, he was brought back with whooping cough. He was incredibly ill, a very incredibly ill child. And the plantation owners, Moses and Susan Carver, took him into their home and gave him a place to be. They parented him. He still was responsible for chores in the household, but he spent a lot of time with Susan because he was sick. And so he learned to embroider and he learned to crochet and he learned to wash clothes. And he, he learned many of what would have been considered the woman's job in the home. He learned much of that work. And throughout his life, that was important because it's how he made his living to get through school. So as soon as he was old enough to leave the house, he would go out, and that was very young in those days. We would never let our children leave at four o'clock in the morning when they were so tiny. But when he was very young, he would leave the house at four o'clock in the morning and he would wander into the woods. And he had a very special place, a grove, where he brought plants. He would find them in other parts of the forest and bring them. And he created this sacred grove with plants that he loved. And he talked about them as living beings who expressed the infinite to him, that he would ask them questions and they would give him answers, answers that came easily and effortlessly. And he saw the forest as alive. He saw those plants he dealt with as living beings to such the degree that when he uprooted one from one place and carried it to another, if a root or a leaf was broken, it would cause him great grief because to him it was causing harm to a living thing. He became so well known before he was 10 years old, people from neighboring counties would bring their plants to him if they were sick and they called him the, the plant doctor. And he had a magical, mystical way of making them well again. 
He said he talked to them and they told him what he needed. They told him how. So how many of you are willing to, and you don't have to, raise your hand and say that you have talked to a plant? Okay, a pretty good number of you. How many of you have heard the plant talk back? A couple of you. A couple of you. How many of you have gone out into the woods and felt divine presence as you were there? Yes. And that is what George Washington Carver based his entire life on. That in that magical, mystical sense that something was there greater than him. Now today in the 21st century, we, we're not surprised by that because our science is telling us that there's a whole living system happening in our forest. But this was the late 1800s. It was a very different time scientifically. Let's look at what we know now. Imagine you're walking through a forest. I'm guessing you're thinking of a collection of trees, but a forest is much more than what you see. Underground, there is this other world, a world of infinite biological pathways that connect trees and allow the forest to behave as though it's a single organism. Mycorrhiza literally means fungus root. They're the mushrooms. The mushrooms are fungal threads that form a mycelium, and where the fungal cells interact with the root cells, there's a trade of carbon for nutrients. The web is so dense that there can be hundreds of kilometers of mycelium under a single footstep. That mycelium connects different individuals not only of the same species, but between species. We have found that mother trees nurture their young. A mother tree can be connected to hundreds of other trees. Mother trees will send their excess carbon through the mycorrhizal network to the understory seedlings. They even reduce their own root competition to make elbow room for their kids. When mother trees are injured or dying, they also send messages of wisdom onto the next generation of seedlings. So we've used isotope tracing to trace carbon moving from an injured mother tree down her trunk into the mycorrhizal network and into her neighboring seedlings. Not only carbon, but also defense signals. Through back and forth conversations, they increase the resilience of the whole community. That's because there are many hub trees and many overlapping networks. So trees talk, but they're also vulnerable, not only to natural disturbances like bark beetles that preferentially attack big old trees, but high grade logging and clear cut logging. You see, you can take out one or two hub trees, but there comes a tipping point. Because hub trees are not unlike rivets in an airplane. You can take out one or two and the plane still flies, but you take out one too many, or maybe that one holding on the wings, and the whole system collapses. 
Massive disturbance at this scale is known to affect hydrological cycles, degrade wildlife habitat, and emit greenhouse gases back to the atmosphere, which creates more disturbance and more tree diebacks. We need to save our old growth forests. These are the repositories of genes and mother trees and mycorrhizal networks. We need to re-establish local involvement in our own forests. When we do cut, we need to save the mother trees and networks so they can pass their wisdom onto the next generation of trees. We need to regenerate our forests with a diversity of species and genotypes and structures allowing natural regeneration. We have to give Mother Nature the tools she needs to use her intelligence to self-heal. And we need to remember that forests aren't competing with each other, they're super cooperators. probably not surprised to learn that trees talk to each other. In fact, you may have seen something like this before, or you may have had an experience that let you know that was happening. But you might be surprised to know that they're reaching out to communicate with us. And this is in the 21st century. Imagine how it might feel to hear that in the late 1800s. Imagine how crazy you might think somebody was. George Washington Carver was an interesting fellow. As I was explaining to you, he grew up with Susan and Moses Carver, and they gave him an old spelling book and a Bible. And he used both of those things to learn to read with some coaching from those people. When he was less than 10, he left home to go to a school uh, there was only one school where he could attend. It was a school for, for black children, and it was eight miles away. And so he moved away from home, um, all he had known as home, and went to the school and studied for nine months before he had learned everything that the teacher there could teach him. And the teacher helped him move several miles away again so he could go to high school and learn a little bit more, and then encouraged him to apply for college. And he applied at Highland University in Kansas and was accepted. This was a very exciting thing for him, just like it is for any of us, for any of our children. And when the day came several months later for him to go to college, he was ready and he was excited and he arrived at Highland University and was turned away because his application had come by mail and they didn't know he was black. And they didn't accept black students because they were afraid it would affect the donations they received. So he was turned away, was very disappointed, and went back into his native land in Kansas and found 160 acres and homesteaded for a couple of years. And while he was there, he returned to some of his Bible study 
some of the things that he had learned as a, as a child and decided he needed to go to church. Up until that time, he had not. And when he went to church, he met a couple, and their name was Milholland, Mr. and Mrs. Milholland, and they invited him home for dinner and got to know him. And over time, they watched him paint, and he used to make his paint and his paintbrushes out of what he found in the forest. And they watched him paint and were amazed at his talent and encouraged him to apply at Simpson College. Simpson College had never taken a black student, but he was so inspired by his friends that he applied to appease them, and he was accepted. And he was the first black student to be accepted in Simpson College. And when he went there, he studied art and a little bit of music. And his art teacher was worried for him because she didn't believe that a young black man could make a living on art in our country at that time. But her father was a teacher at Iowa State University, and he taught horticulture. And one of the things that she noticed about her young student was that every single thing he painted had nature in it. And so she got into a conversation with him and learned what he was about and suggested to him that he go to college and study horticulture. Had she not done that, we probably would not have all the amazing products that we have available through peanuts and sweet potatoes and things that he, he managed to bring forth. But he was accepted at Iowa State University, and there was no place for him to live. For a little while, one of the teachers let him sleep in the office. And when that didn't work, he made friends with a, uh, another student named Charles Reed. And Charles Reed allowed him to share his room and share his bed. And he talked about, Charles Reed talked about George Washington Carver. And he said, this man was miracle worker. This was a man who did things differently than everyone else. He was not good in math. He was not good in physics. And he was not good in anything physical. And yet, when an assignment was given, George Washington Carver would go out and into his lab, and he would come back with the result. And while the rest of the students used trial and error, he would find an answer at the beginning of the process. He didn't have to try it, see if it failed, try it again, see if it failed, try it again until he found the right way. He found the answers almost immediately in what his fellow students called a very mystical and unexplainable way. And the only thing that he was able to tell them was God told him. He asked the question and he was given the answer. So he completed his master's degree at Iowa State University and he was invited to teach there. But before he even got settled, George Booker Washington asked him to come and teach at Tuskegee University. And Tuskegee University wasn't a university for black students. When George was little, he had visions. I'll give you an example. When he was very young, he wanted a pocket knife. And of course, no one was going to give him a pocket knife. And he went to sleep one night before he even went to grade school thinking about a pocket knife. And he had a dream that night about a field. And there was a pocket knife in the field. So when he got up at four o'clock in the morning to do his regular walk out in the field, 
or out in the forest. He went to the field instead. And in the exact place that he had dreamt of was a watermelon. And inside the watermelon, stuck in the watermelon, was a pocket knife. So he learned really young that he could trust the visions that came and the visions that he saw over and over in his life were visions that he would make a difference in the life of the poor black farmers who had come out of slavery and now had land and no idea how to make enough money, how to take care of themselves. So when he went to Tuskegee University, he was very excited that he would be in the heart of the community he wanted to serve. And he left a very beautiful facility, a real university, to arrive at Tuskegee, which was basically a group of shanty buildings. His, his room that he would teach in was the same room he had to stay in. He had one room. He had no laboratory and nothing to work with. And so he gathered his first students and they went out into the city and scoured the trash in the back alleys and collected bottles and broken down pots and pans and lids. And he created something from nothing because God told him to. Because he asked how and he was told how. As he taught, he never allowed his students to take a book into the lab. Because he said the lab was the place to open and be led. Not the place to decide what would happen, but to be led to what was needed at the time. His entire life was based on following a voice, an understanding, a sense of divine presence. And he trusted it. And because he trusted it, he talked through everything to the divine and the divine spoke back to him through everything. That practice is called panentheism. It means that we see that the Holy communicates to us through all that there is and that we're connected to all of that. And we have access to the Holy always everywhere we are through every source available to us. That can be taken to clouds, to rivers, to trees, to plants, to stones. In fact, I told you last week when he was young, he used to pick up the stones and talk to them and put them in his pocket. And he would go in the house and have to take them back down the hill because he wasn't allowed to have them. He spoke with everything and he asked and he got answers. That is the methodology I want you to have. That is the methodology that is as available to you as it was to him. And imagine how many more resources you have. This was a man who came from nothing. And yet the whole world showed him God. And that is available to you as well. I have some quotes for you. Next week, we'll talk more about George Washington Carver and what he did in his adult life and some of his work with Mahatma Gandhi and uh, other leaders that, whose names you'll recognize. But for today, he said this, reading about nature is fine, but if a person walks in the woods and listens carefully, he can learn more than he will ever find in books. 
He said, no individual has any right to come into the world and go out of it without leaving behind the distinct and legitimate reasons for having passed through it. He said, God is going to reveal to us things he never revealed before. If we put our hands in his, no books ever go into my laboratory. The thing I am to do and the way of doing it are revealed to me. I never have to grope for methods. The method is revealed to me the moment I am inspired to create something new. Without God to draw aside the curtain, I would be helpless. He said, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. And finally, he said this, nothing is more beautiful than the loveliness of the woods before sunrise. <laughs>